want to try to clear some of that up this morning. Um, and so before I do, before we jump into that, I would like just to pray um, for God to help us. So, Lord Jesus, uh, we are amazed at your love and your kindness to us, amazed that we're alive today, that we awoke this morning and we were able to make it here. That is a gift from your hand. You are our sustainer. When we sing, you are all we need. Uh, we mean that. You are all we need because you are the one keeping us alive right now. And we honor you and we thank you for that. And that I pray that as, we, uh, as, I, as I preach this morning and as I share things that I hope are helpful to your church, I pray, God, that I would do them in love and in humility. And I pray, God, that the things I say would be received in love and in humility. And that this would only serve to help us to maintain um, our unity as believers. And so, Spirit, come. And I pray that you would encourage my friends in this room. And Lord, I am aware there's probably some sitting here who have deep pains this morning, deep hurt, trouble, sorrow. And uh, they, they came here to receive a touch from you. They, they came here to have you help them. And so I ask, Lord, that even if this message is geared more towards our church as a community, that somehow you would use truth from your word this morning to minister to them, to care for them, to touch them. God, that they would leave here um, aware of the fact that you didn't just see us this morning, but you saw them this morning. God, would you do that for anyone in this room that is hurting and struggling this morning? And then be here and use this time to bring clarity, God, um, so that we can move forward as a church in a, in a wonderful way that will produce fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we talk about gospel, community, and mission. And I want to just begin by saying this. When you hear those three phrases, I want you to not think of them as three separate things. We need to think of them as three things that work together in harmony. They're not to be pulled apart as separate entities. And so last week, for example, I urged us to, exhorted us to make it our aim that our highest thoughts and our greatest emotions would be set aside for what is of first importance. And so I want to begin by reminding us of that. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, For I deliver to you, deliver to you, as of first importance. What was first in Paul's mind? What preoccupied his, his thoughts and his emotions and the things he said? Well, here's what he says. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Listen, this will always be of first importance importance. <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ is what should reign supreme in our thoughts and should captor, capture our most zealous emotions. If something's going to make us excited, if something's going to stir our hearts, if something's going to make us want to jump up and down and shout, it should be the gospel. Before anything else, it should be the gospel. And when we say the word gospel, we certainly mean Jesus died for our sins. It's that simple, right? He, he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. That is the gospel. But from that, from that gospel flows all kinds of other good news. Remember the word gospel just means good news. 
So there's more good news that comes as a result of Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead. Millions of practical implications for how the gospel speaks to marriage or parenting or work or relationships, or how we view ourselves. So when we talk about the gospel, we can talk about justification, we can talk about propitiation, we can talk about redemption, love, guilt, all the things that flow in and out of this idea of the gospel, and all of them are meant to be connected to your everyday life. That's why we talk about speaking Jesus into things, right? There's something about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing, or what he will do that will connect some way to everything or anything you go through in life. I believe that with all my heart. So my question for you is, do you know how to do that? Are you growing at learning how to do that? I don't know if you guys knew this, but 18 years ago, Elspeth and I packed up our things in New Jersey and moved our family to Gaithersburg because we did not know how to do that. That was honestly the driver behind why we moved. We realized there's this church in Gaithersburg where there's people who know how to apply the gospel to things other than just salvation eternal or salvation future. And we did not know how to do that. And we would read books. We would try to figure it out. We'd listen to messages. And finally, I said, we're done. So literally, we moved so we could be part of Covenant Life, so we could learn how to do that. For many of you, from the people of Covenant Life, who knew how to do it. And so this is why I urge us to read The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges, which is in the back, Gospel Fluency, because those aid us. But the best way to do it is to be doing it with one another, to learn how to speak truth of the gospel into everyday life. So listen, if you don't know how to do that, or you want to grow in doing that, Elspeth and I would love to get together with you and talk to you about how to do that love to get together and just sit down and have a conversation about different things of life and how we attempt to attach what Jesus has done for us or what he's doing or what he will do to our everyday life. Because if you don't speak Jesus into those things, you're speaking something else, which means you're not directing people towards Jesus, which is really bad, really bad. So we want to learn how to do that. So again, if you don't know how or you want to grow in doing that, please let us know. We'd love to do that. The point I'm trying to make is this. The gospel impacts every area of our lives. That is why it is of first importance. (laughs) First importance, because it penetrates into every area of our lives. But the area that I want to focus on this morning is community. How does the gospel impact community? How, How do we think of gospel community and mission as really one thing, that the gospel impacts community, and then the gospel is what gives power for mission, and then we do Mission in community because of the gospel and with the gospel. How do they all work together? Well, this morning we're talking about how the gospel impacts community specifically. Community, let me say this is a statement to get us started, is not possible without the gospel. Okay, so our community, our togetherness is not possible without the gospel. So without further ado, we need to get to where we should be, the most important place, God's word. Turn to Ephesians with me if you would. It is on page 977. If you want to use one of the black Bibles on the row around you, page 977. I want to use Ephesians as a sampling for how the gospel speaks to community. How the gospel speaks to us being together and hanging out together in ways that we don't want to kill each other. Okay? That's really what this is about this morning. So the book of Ephesians... Nine, page 977. I'm going to look at chapter 4. Before we do that, I want you to just, you got to get a layout of the book. So this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, but it also circulated to lots of other churches. 
And it's got six chapters. Man, put those chapters in there to help us find stuff. But it's three and three. The first three chapters is filled with indicatives. So the first three chapters, has, it, all it says is everything God has done for us. Here's what God's done for us. Here's what Jesus has done for us, except for the word remember. That's the only imperative in the first three chapters. And then he transitions in chapter four to all of these imperatives. What do we do in light of what God has already done for us? So if you just want to look really quick, let me just point one out to you here. So chapter one, verse seven, here's one little gospel glimpse, and it's in every chapter of Ephesians in the first three. Look at one seven. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So there's gospel in chapter 1. If you look at chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. So it's gospel. There's, there's more of that in chapter 3. Then you get to chapter 4, and look how he transitions. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now, the therefore is referring back to the first three chapters. Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, he's about to give us some instructions on now how do we respond to it. What's our role? What do we do? God's done all this great stuff for us through the gospel. How do we respond? Let's see where Paul takes us. What is the first place? What's the first thing that Paul is going to address when he tries to connect the gospel to our lives? Let's see what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. There's an urgency to what he's about to say. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's another way of saying the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, there's community, eager to maintain the unity, there's more community, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what is the first application Paul brings when he's, after he's done talking about the gospel? He goes immediately into... The church, our unity, our, our community, our, us living together. What does it look like for us to live together as believers? So that's, that's his very first connection that he makes. He thinks this is an urgent thing to see how the gospel applies to community, to a local church, to a group of believers. Now, what I want you to notice is in verse 3, the word maintain. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, not attain. You all know the difference, right? We are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're not to attain unity. We're not to create community. The Spirit, according to this, has already given us unity. He's in you and he is in me because of the gospel. So we are unified. So we're not trying to create community. So when we have lunch together today, we're not trying to create community. We're not trying to create unity. We're trying to maintain unity. We already have unity in the gospel. And now we are to be, and he says, eager to maintain that unity. So I'm just try to get this down in the weeds of real life. Think about people that you know in the church and just ask yourself, am I eager? Do I deeply desire to maintain the unity 
that I already have with everyone else in this room because of Christ? Am I diligent to do this? Am I laboring to maintain the unity that I already have in Christ? And then he gets very practical and tells us how. <laughs> Love it, right? How do we eager, how, how can we be eager to maintain this community? He tells us to be humble, gentle, patient, and loving. Those are his words. That's how you maintain what you already have. Sometimes it helps me to reverse words so I can understand them better. In other words, don't be proud, be humble. Don't be harsh, be gentle. Don't be in a hurry, be patient. Don't ignore or avoid people, love them. I mean, this is like Christianity 101. I mean, just, just so you know, a little insight, little spoiler alert here. Tyler Jordan and I were talking about this at length this week, and we realized really what we're trying to do as a church is so simple. It's so basic. Like, there's no, like, crazy plan here. It's, we're going to love each other, be gentle with each other, patient with each other, so that we can maintain what Jesus already did. It's not our job to try to come up with things so that we'll all be unified. We're already unified. If the gospel is of first importance, we're already unified. And all he wants us to do is love each other and be gentle in order to maintain what he has already done. And I love this because think about how the gospel connects to this. Wasn't Jesus humble and gentle and patient and loving when he came to earth? I mean, how was the gospel established? Because he was loving, gentle, patient, and kind to us. And so what do we do to maintain what he's already done? We just act the same way he acted. So we're not creating even our own little, like, oh, we've got to do this. No, we're just following what he did in order to keep maintaining what he's already established in his life, death, and resurrection. I think that's really cool because that's simple, and I'm a simple person. So I love that. Like, that's how I maintain. If I want to maintain a unity of community with all of you, those are the characteristics that I need to be going for. And I'm only going for those because Jesus already accomplished them. He already did them. And that is why I know that we are already unified. I probably have not said anything super profound, have I? Right? We all nod our heads and go, yeah, of course, of course. Of course that's true. So I ask us, well, then why is that not always the experience in the church? Why? Why is there murmuring and complaining and judging and, and divisive opinions and all these other things? Why, why then? Why? And so for the last two months, God has been repeating a theme to me over and over again. Because there could be multiple reasons why, but there's one that keeps rising to the surface. And it's seen in chapter 6. If you don't mind, just turning the page over to chapter 6. And I'm going to reveal to you that God has a gospel plan and someone else has a plan to destroy his gospel plan. In chapter 6, verse 11, we are told, you guys there, 611, that we are to put on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, I know the challenge that happens in our brain, especially maybe some of you younger kids. We picture this dude with a pitchfork and the tail. This is not a video game. Like, this is for reals. Like, there really is an enemy who is coming up with plans. He is scheming to destroy the unity that we already have in Christ. That is his plan. He wants to jack up our relationships. And that's what he's doing. 
He, he wants to mess up. He wants to plant thoughts. He wants to do things to derail us from wanting to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. And if you go over to the next couple of verses, chapter uh, 6, verse 16, it says that he is throwing flaming darts. Flaming darts are coming at us from him. Thoughts and ideas and all kinds of things he's trying to put in our brains and in our ways, in our hearts, little darts coming at us all the time. That's his plan. He wants to mess it all up. And so it serves his plan. Listen, when we are not loving, when we're not gentle, when we're not patient, when we talk negatively about others in any way, we're serving his plan to not maintain the unity that we already have in Christ. Listen, he is scheming to divide us by getting us to say things that will mess up the unity that we should have in Christ. He wants us to criticize one another. He wants us to judge one another. He wants us to complain about things that we're doing or not doing as a church. He wants us to just our our minds to go down all these different roads that will destroy unity. That's his plan. So just... Be aware of this. This is his goal. And I think the more that a people try to do the things God has called them to do and start to see fruit and move in good directions, the more that he is on the move to mess it up. That's what he wants to do. So the spirit this morning is at work trying to help us maintain the unity. The devil is also at work trying to divide our unity. The Spirit is at work helping us maintain the unity that Jesus has purchased while he is trying to mess up the unity that Jesus has already purchased. So let me share some more flaming darts, some more things that I think he uses in order to mess up the church. And you guys who have been in the church long enough, you know that crazy things can mess up a church. Crazy things can divide the unity of the church. Everything from the carpet color that you have to pick out in your new building to whether you pave or gravel the parking lot, juice or wine in the Lord's Supper, budget decisions, guitar organ, not our issue, thank goodness. And the list goes on and on. Homeschool, private school, public school can do it. And then of recent, voting, who you vote for, political issues, vaccines and when you get vaccines or even mask wearing i was thinking about that this week it is amazing how a little five by three piece of blue cloth can mess up the unity of the gospel and that is insane absolutely insane and all the devil had to do was go i think i'll just drop this little blue thing okay watch it happen now that just reveals, if it, if it is dividing us anyway, that we really don't have the gospel as first importance. Because <laughs> if we do, that'll be the unity that holds us together. But to maintain it, we have to figure out how to live with this in a way that doesn't destroy our unity that we already have. And I know that some will say, well, it's not really the blue piece of cloth. It has more to do with what it represents. Well, listen, I think what the cross represents is more powerful than what this represents. And I'm not correcting anybody because I've not heard of this here. But I'm sure that it's, it's in our hearts a little bit in some ways. Maybe it's spoken out. I don't know. I, I don't want to babysit our conversations, but can I just give you a step of wisdom? If you're in a group of five or six people, don't say something like, man, I can't believe some people haven't gotten vaccine. Because probably one of those people haven't gotten the vaccine. 
In other words, be humble, think. Like, there's conversations you want to have with people, but you want to have them in a humble, kind, listening way. Like, what do you think about this? I'd like to learn more. Not even knowing. But just to be wise in the kind of conversation we have, knowing that the devil would love for us to lob some statement into a group that will blow the group up. And he'll use something as silly as a mask and other things like that. He will use whatever he can use. He will even use, and I know there's some confusion, and so I want to address these kind of things this morning, whether or not we have large community groups as a church or whether we have groups of three as a church. So I want to just address that head on with a little history lesson. So when Christ Church started, we did community groups with, I don't know, 10 couples, give or take some, in a group. And uh, we also, some of those groups also had little smaller groups, like groups of two or three with guys and girls, and they would get together and do stuff. So we had that, and it was rolling. As time went on, Tyler Jordan and I realized, one, it was really hard for some of these larger groups to get together because you had to pick a night of the week that works for 10 couples and babysitters, which is just a train wreck for everybody. So that was the first thing. The second thing was we realized there was more mileage, more good fruit coming out of groups of two or three. So we were thinking this kind of way. So this is a history lesson, just to kind of get us, because I think COVID just, just really whacked out all of our thinking of the history and why are we doing what we're doing and where we are. So I'm trying to fill it in. So COVID hits, and so we try to do community group of 12 people on a Zoom call. I'm, I'm sorry, but it didn't work. So we said, let's just make sure that everyone in the church is getting cared for Right? That was the goal by saying, well, people might be willing to meet with two or three people and be safe, so let's do small groups. Let's do something smaller. And so that's where how we proceeded um, when COVID was in its prime, I guess. <laughs> Say whatever. So that was, that was the plan. And with that plan, we also said, if at any time your group or, or you want to meet as a larger group, please feel free to do that. If there's people who feel safe, and they want to do that, please regather as larger groups and do that as often as you want. But we also encourage to try to also continue some of the smaller groups. So my point in me saying this to you, representing Tyler and Jordan and myself, is that I don't care how many people are in your group. <laughs> That's not the beep point. <laughs> it's not the point. <laughs> The point is very clear in Scripture as to what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so we've got to make sure we don't mix up what God's Word clearly says with how we practice it. Do you understand that? Now, there, there has to be some structure, because I think that's important for the pastors to help with your help to figure out what the structure looks like, because we don't want people to fall through the cracks. So there has to be some kind of structure going on. But honestly, we don't care. That's not the point. The point is, do we understand what we are trying to accomplish? Because when we get all whacked out over the form, we forget the reason we're actually doing it, which is clear in Scripture. So here we go. I just want to remind us that community exists very clearly in the Bible for mission. There is a goal at the end of the road for why we would meet in either threes or tens or twelves. So the first reason in Scripture that I think is crystal clear is for the sake of those who don't know Jesus yet. And so we have a verse that's going to go up from John 17. We've read it before. Jesus says this. He's praying 
to the Father. And he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, right? You and I have believed in Jesus through the word of the disciples. And here's what he prays, that they may all be one, unity. We'd be all on the same page. So much one that it looks just like the way the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father. That's what he says. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Reason, reason for this unity, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Crystal clear in my mind. Believers gather together in some number so that those who don't know Jesus yet can be a part. That's hospitality. We make people on the outside feel like they're on the inside. They, they part so they can see our unity that we're maintaining, that we're fighting to maintain, that we already have because of the gospel, not because we all like the same songs or because we all have the same hobbies or you name it. Just because of the gospel, we have this unity. And that is the apologetic for people to say, huh, I believe that maybe Jesus really did come from heaven. That's the argument. That's what's supposed to convince people. They should look at us and go, man, you guys are so unified, even though you have so many things that you could disagree about. You see so many things differently, but you're unified. How come? And you say, because we know what is of first importance. So Jesus, a little earlier in John chapter 13, says something similar, only he talked about not just our unity, but our love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How do people know that we are disciples of a risen Jesus, a man who suffered and died and resurrected? How do they know? Well, when we have love for one another, which links right back to the Ephesians verses, does it not? Where it says we maintain the unity by the way we love each other. So we are unified and there's a love that we have for one another that is supposed to make a compelling argument to the world that Jesus really is who he said he was. So that's the point of community, whether it's a group this size, and I think even more importantly, in smaller settings. That's the unity, and that's the love that they should be seeing. So that's the first. The second, I already, you guys already know the answer. The first is go mission. That means the second is grow. And we're going to go to Hebrews. So please turn to Hebrews with me. Hebrews 10. Because this is just one of the places there is a clear understanding as to what you and I need from each other in order to stay in the faith. So let me read Hebrews 10, 23. You guys are familiar with this because we've memorized it together as a church. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Did I skip something in there? Let us stir up. I got it all. Okay. As you see the day drawing near. So what is the simple argument he's making here? It's don't neglect meeting with other believers in some setting where you are able to stir someone up to love and good works, be stirred up to love and good works, 
to encourage someone and to be encouraged. Some setting needs to be in your life, some mechanism for that to happen. And I think it probably is harder for that to happen in a large, I'll I'll use the word large for this setting. So there needs to be some subset of this, whatever that looks like, three, six, ten, whatever God is doing in order to accomplish that in order to make a place where you can be encouraged, a place where you can be stirred up. I think all we do know is that the larger the group gets, the easier it is to hide and to not be encouraged and stirred up and to not have the ability to encourage and stir up other people, which is why we've been arguing mostly for groups of three because that seems to be a great way to do it, but it doesn't mean it can't be done in a larger group size. So as, as Tyler Jordan and I were talking about this week, it, Jordan had this illustration, and Tyler and I were like, that is a really helpful illustration. He was talking about driving to work. And he's like, every, every day I drive to work. I get in my car, and the goal is to get to work. And some days I take the highway and I get to work. Other days there's traffic, so I take the side road to the south to get to work. And the next day I take the north road. It's three lanes one way. It's one the other. It's five this way. It doesn't matter which way I go. The goal is to get to work. And the same is true for us. The goal is for us to live on go and grow mission together. The way we get there can look differently. Does that make sense? It should look differently. There's no problem with it looking differently. The point is that we should just not neglect meeting together. So there needs to be some resolve in us to make sure that we have at least a few other brothers or sisters that we are meeting with for encouragement and for help when we need it. Don't neglect it. And listen, just in case you think casually about neglecting to meet with other people, just look at the warning in verse 23. He tells us to hold fast without wavering. Verse 25, he says, if we go on sinning deliberately... I think that verse 26 comes right after the warning of neglecting to meet together because meeting together is a way to prevent you from wavering and from sinning deliberately. I think that's why it's there. So this is kind of what this looks like. So I am living my life and I am trying to walk with Jesus and for Jesus and towards Jesus. And as I am, there are things that happen that cause me to waver a little. I may not be really aware of them a whole lot. Then there's other times, according to the text, where I sin deliberately. I do stuff deliberately that I know I shouldn't do. So there's this spectrum of I waver a little, and then I sin on purpose, and I waver a little, and sin on purpose. So I need other people on my path with me who nudge me back on the path, who warn me, nudge me back on the path, so that I don't wander off the path and go off a cliff. And that's the goal, right? So I don't keep on sinning deliberately and then abandon the faith. Like, this is not like, oh, yeah, I should be meeting. No, no, this is life or death. I honestly believe that. That's what that says. This is life or death. Either you will have those people in your life that will help you stay on the path, or you will end up abandoning the faith. So you need that. Now, here's the trick. These people that are helping you stay on the path, every once in a while, they're just going to stick their foot out and trip you. (laughs) Or they're going to poke you. They're going to piss you off some way. (laughs) They're going to hurt you. And it's not going to be fun. And so Tyler's when he said in our meeting on Friday, you got to fight for this. You got to fight for it. Because the very same people that are trying to help you stay on the path at times are going to rub you the wrong way. But we've got to maintain the unity by being loving and gentle and humble and sticking through it with people. Because they're the ones who are trying to help us stay on the path. 
Does that make sense? So we need each other. So just, this is just like a, a warning thing. If you don't have those one or two people that are walking with you in life, you need to get them. You need to find them. Or you're, you're out to waver or sin deliberately in ways, and you may not even know it. And you need them to help you. Let me just make a statement. Tell me if you agree or disagree silently in your own heart. (laughs) (laughs) There are things that you have done this past week that have been sinful that you know nothing about. And so you need, depending on your answer, my answer is yes. (laughs) Therefore, I need people with me. I need people to help me. I need people to point it out to me. Have I wavered this week? And I don't even know I wavered. Yeah. So I need people to help me to see where I'm wavering. I'd almost encourage you. Here's your assignment. This is spontaneous. Maybe it's not of the Spirit. I don't know. Ask the people that know you the best. Where do you see me potentially wavering? Or do you see me wavering? Do you see me going off in any way, giving my heart to something other than Jesus and his way? Do you see things in my life that I'm making first importance other than God? Just ask somebody to help you. So they can help you on the path and keep you going in the right direction. So I think this is the reason this is so important. And, and the approach we have taken to how to do this when you're in little groups of three or in your larger groups is an email I send out every week, which looks like this. So every week, you guys get an email that has three things on it. It has a section of review and apply, a section of speaking Jesus, and then it has something about your go plan. So several years ago, Tyler and Jordan and I sat down and they said, Matt, your emails are too long. And you're asking people to do way too much. And I agreed 100%. And so we trimmed it down to these three. We said, these are the three most important. This is where we want our church to focus. This is what might help us grow the most. So we talked about go. This idea just to have conversations and pray for each other to make sure that we are not forgetting the fact that God is bringing people into our lives that don't know Jesus yet that he wants us to love. And then figure out how do we do that in community, not just on our own. And then we talked about, we want people to make sure that if they're struggling in life, which I'm guessing we all do every time we meet in whatever setting, that people feel the openness to share their struggle, their trial, whatever it is they're walking through, and that the group would then try to speak something true about who Jesus is to them to help them. We thought that was important. And then third was review and apply. First is review and apply, the idea of reviewing a Sunday message and then applying it to our lives, reviewing it and applying it. And so we understand, make sure some of you guys that are girls that are those A-type personalities, you do not have to get through all three every time. Should I say that again? You do not have to get through all three every time. And the review and apply questions, sometimes there's more of them and sometimes there's less. You do not need to go through all of those questions. You don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to go through all the questions. They're there to serve you, to help you, and you may do one. Some of the groups go through all of them, and that's great. You may go to two of them. That's fine. And there's going to be weeks where someone's going to come with a serious issue they want help with, and you're not going to get to any of the questions, and that's okay. Do you understand? There's freedom, freedom, but this is a guide. No one should say, hey, are we meeting on Friday? What are we going to talk about? You already know what you're going to talk about. You got three categories to talk about. There's no mystery in this. There's no like pulling stuff out of the sky. It's here. This is, this is where we're going as a church in order to help us to not neglect meeting together and to make sure we're not wavering or sinning deliberately. So that is why we're doing this. Now, let me explain why the review and apply and why this is so important. This review and apply thing, I think, became a deeper conviction for me when we studied James together. Because we got to James chapter 1, 
And it's very clear that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. So that means there's a potential for us to live a a deceived life because we're taking in all this Bible and we're not applying. We have all this knowledge, but we're not doing it. More knowledge. I want to know more, 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 more. But then we aren't really putting it into action. I know that you don't want to live deceived and I don't think I want to live deceived. So it seems really important to God that we slow down and let him examine our hearts through his word. We don't do a Bible study. God does a mat study. He brings his word to me to change me. That's the goal in all this. So so I'm going to hopefully make this clear and to say this, that I know that we've studied, for example, we've been in uh, Isaiah the last couple of weeks, right? The, The application questions have come down from Isaiah. Just say this. You will never be done applying any one single passage to your life. Never. As soon as I think, oh, I've got that. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't. So we just got to slow down and let God's word really work deeply down into our souls because we will, my heart will never be fully formed or conformed to any one single truth of God's word. It won't. I'm on a journey. I'm getting there. But there's always, always more. And this is why, go back to the beginning of our church, I have steered away from having this be a church of Bible studies, where we have all these different Bible studies in a church. And believe it or not, even God can use that to try to divide the church, which is crazy. But let me explain why we've chosen to build Christ's church this way. And the first is because I do believe we know more Bible than we're applying. I need more application, not more knowledge. So that was one reason. The second reason is that... The second reason, the second way we're approaching this is that we have, and I did not do this with Genesis, and that's a failure on my part, is to, every time we study a book of the Bible together, to give you guys Bible study guides so that in your groups you can study the Bible. You can study it before we preach it or after we preach it, whenever you want to do it, you can do that. Like, that's fair game to do. I think what we're trying to avoid is just studying the Bible for the sake of just studying the Bible with no aim. And so what I've said since day one is this. If you're in a group of people and you realize you're all really just struggling with how to understand suffering in your lives, then do a Bible study on First or Second Peter. Do a Bible study on Job. Do a Bible study on Lamentations. If you realize in your group that you're all just really uh, concerned about lust, then do a study from God's Word on lust. Let's suppose it's money, then do a study on that. Like, the point is there's a goal. It's like the illustration with Jordan. There's an aim. We're trying to get somewhere. We wanna, we, there's something specific we need to address rather than the idea of just having a Bible study for the sake of just having Bible study. And the goal then is that something inside of us, I hope, is changing. That's the key, the changing. And so Hebrews 4 tells us this, I think it's going to go on the screen, that the word of God is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. For that to happen, God's word has got to get deep in you. It's got to get into you. But the point of it is it's supposed to pierce you. It is supposed to cut. So I have my favorite knife. This is my favorite buck knife. And so what do I do with this knife? Where does it always stay? It always stays in here, right? Because I don't want to cut myself. Do you understand that 
absolute opposite is true of God's word, we should actually pick this up expecting it to cut our hearts. That's what he's saying. It should pierce us. We should read it and there should be something inside of us that is, that is aroused, that's corrected, that, that feels God's presence in a unique way. That's what God's word is supposed to do for us and to us. It's supposed to cut away things from our lives. So you may not know this, but you have, you guys know in Hebrews it talks about, just for the kids especially, that there are weights that hang around us. Sin is described as a weight. And we all have them. You have them. You, you don't know you have them, but you've got stuff hanging on you that you carry around, weights, trials, a lot of sin that holds you down, that weighs you down. And you don't even know it's there a lot of times. Other people might be able to see it sometimes, but we don't see it and it's there. And so the point of reviewing and applying God's word is so that God's word can come out like a sword and cut it away. Get rid of the sin that's there because you don't want it there. You don't want to walk around with this rest of your life. And so he uses his word to cut it away. And then there's times where I think he also, I look at 1 Corinthians talks about this, where we try to look up at God, but it's clouded. You ever feel like your vision of God's clouded? So God's word is meant to help correct our view of God. It, it cuts away the things that aren't true about God that we're believing so we can see him more clearly. So it's not just to get rid of the sin, but it's to help us see who God is. But we should come to his word expecting it to cut, at times even to hurt. And a lot of times that happens in community. I have a list of things, I won't get to all of them, of ways I've been with other people and God's word cut them and as a result, God's word actually cut me. I remember Jess Smith at a picnic at the Hively's when we had the taco truck sharing about the Bible reading plan and how God's word spoke to her and the changes she made. And it instantly cut to my heart. I need, I, I need to apply God's word that way. She shared how God's word had impacted her life. Mark Jekyll has done this to me, for me. Denny has done this to me over and over again. This past month, Elizabeth has done it for me as we've gone through Isaiah 55, where there was something I knew I should change, but I just didn't have the, the resolve to do it. And then she said, hey, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm actually going to make this change. And as soon as she said it, I felt this freedom and this cutting away. So I immediately went and did the thing that I knew I needed to do. But I didn't have that, I don't know what it was that I didn't do it until in community with her, she said what she was doing. And I went, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to join you. Because we need each other. We need to stir each other up. And in this case, it was through Isaiah 55 and are constantly trying to apply Isaiah 55 to our lives. So I hope some of this helps you. I want to make sure that I'm being clear that we already have unity. We already have it. Jesus did it for us. We just get to maintain it by being humble and gentle and patient and loving as we join together to live on go mission and on grow mission. And listen, none of that is ever going to change. The way we, with the way it fleshes out might change, might change for you, but those will be the goals because this is what God has called us clearly to do in God's word. So no new exciting vision, no smoke and fireworks. This is it. We're going to keep trying to love Jesus together and love other people together and maintain what he has already done by making the gospel of first importance. And the burden that Tyler Jordan and I carry is that 
no one is lost in this. That I know groups shift and get bigger and smaller and people come and go, that no one is left behind. Right? That everybody has some other one or two people at least that they can be a part of to experience God's grace and to prevent them from wavering or sinning deliberately. So I just want to encourage us today to please not neglect meeting together and then to please not make whatever that format looks like the most important thing. The most important thing is to make sure we're doing what God has clearly told us to do when we get into whatever that setting is that God has put us in. Does that make sense? Let's not let the format become everything and then we forget what it is we're actually trying to accomplish in those settings. So I'm just going to ask you a couple questions here to close. Are you neglecting to meet with others? Are you consistently meeting with others? And the next question, are you eager to maintain the unity that Jesus has established? Maybe better questions. What does it look like for you? What does it look like for you to maintain the unity? Who is it that you know you need to work harder at loving, being patient with, in order to maintain what Jesus has already done? And the last one would be, what is the devil doing to try to mess up that unity? What darts is he throwing at you? What lies is he throwing at you? Where is he, what, what is he making of first importance in your life that's distorting community or destroying community other than the gospel? So what, what do you recognize? What do you see devil's plan is for trying to mess up the unity that we have as a church? Do you see that? And if you do, how can you resist it? So there's just three. I'll, I'll email those out. But those are just three things I was thinking about this week of what does it look like to apply this to our lives? And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper because that is our unity. And if you want to turn to, I can't remember now if it's 1st or 2nd Corinthians. It is 1st Corinthians. I want to read to you one little passage. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. But this is one little passage here. Chapter 10. That helps us to understand Jesus' sacrifice and our unity. So 10.14 of 1 Corinthians says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? So we are participating together as a church in the cup of Christ and of the body of Christ. Verse 17 because there was one bread, there's only one Jesus. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So our unity, our oneness, is anchored in one person, Jesus. It is anchored in his blood and in his body. It is not anchored in anything else. And so as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to remember that. I want you to realize that it was one body of Jesus's that was broken that we all get, and that's what brings us together as a body, as, as a church family. So we're going to stand. Let's sing together. And then as we sing the first song, there is gluten-free in the back, and then just regular uh, wine and juice and bread on either side. 
So you guys can go get wine, bread, juice bread, or gluten-free in the back. So let's stand. As we sing this first song, let's go ahead and you can go get your bread and your wine, and then we're going to take that together.